0: Well, hello and welcome to the next of our podcasts where I'm back now in Exeter, where we're holding a conference looking at the issue of religious identity in late antiquity. So that actually is going to be the topic for today's podcast, where I'm very pleased to say my guest here is Doug Boyne from St. Louis University in Missouri. Welcome Doug. Richard, it's fantastic to be in Exeter. What a great city. (laughs) It's lovely to have you here. If we can begin, then, by thinking about this concept of religious identity, which is one which I think is familiar to most people in the modern world now, do we see much of this existing in the Roman world of the late Republic, for example?
1: You, you know, that's a, It's really interesting to go back to Rome with all of our modern assumptions and all of the, the modern terms that we use to talk about us today. You know, we, we think that we're, we've been here for a while and we've been doing it all the same for the whole time. And when we get back into ancient Rome, things are just much, much stranger than, than we sometimes think. And there's really no better uh, example of that than to think about the role of priests, for example, or the role of religion itself in the Roman state. Romans had no word for what we would call an identifiable religion. And in the middle of their kind of government constitutional system of you know, legislature, senate, and executives, the priests themselves really played a, a vital role in ensuring that legislation was passed and that uh, the gods were on the side of, uh, of supporting policy. So in some ways, you know, for us, we think of there being a harsh wall of division between church and state today. Uh, And in Rome, priests and and the the whole religious enterprise was really a branch of government, and that's that's really you know something that is kind of strange.
0: Mm -hmm. So in that sense, priests are not what we would term as religious figures and to kind of separate them out with such categories w- w- would actually be a misnomer for the Roman world
1: I think so they have they have control over the divine divine affairs and in some ways you know we might want to see them as the Department of divine <laughs> affairs uh, and and that's that's their purview but they they cycle in and out and they are they are both appointed and and uh, you know gain their position through through uh, through power um, and, you know, this is something that caused, you know, men of the late Republic a lot of grief. You know, <laughs> Caesar, Caesar famously locked up his co-consul in his home because he was constantly on the lookout for omens or signs that could derail legislation. Uh, and and that's, how, that's how integral it was. So the, the terms that we use, you know, the best for me, I think the, the, the best way of, of uh, you know, talking about ancient Romans sometimes to, to not use them mm-hmm. and just to kind of treat them on their, on their own.
0: And I think, you know, the, the the terms that we use for these people are very difficult because a lot of them are, are more more recent coinages. So if we can talk about these people for a moment using terms, I mean, pagan is a difficult term, or polytheist, maybe you call them the followers of the traditional cult practices for Rome. Would any of them, do you think, have had any sense of a religious identity
1: for themselves? I think they would. I think it was, for them really bound up in their sense of civic pride. I think from the evidence that we see throughout the cities of the Mediterranean, whether it's in um, North Africa, in the cities of North Africa, or even in, in places like Pompeii, the, the city center is, is usually a place where you're going to see a, an altar or you're going to see a relief on a, on an on a arch or a frieze. It'll show you one of the central moments of the Roman year, which is the sacrifice of an animal and the, the banquet that comes after it. And for many Romans, this really was the, the marker of their, of their civic identity. They, they you know, associated this with the emperor. They associated this with the protection for their, for their family and for their, for their state. So there was a point of pride in being able to see these. You know, We look at them today in museums and we think they're, they're photographs of events that took place. But they really aren't. These reliefs that we find on the ground are, are really statements of pride for people who were invested in what it meant to be uh, a really public... Um, mm-hmm. uh, have a public care for, for
0: where they lived. So you'd say that certainly it's a real part of their own identity... But not necessarily something separate from being Roman or being Pompeian, for example. I mean, what would you say of something like Ephesus? So in you know, the the great temple of Artemis there do you think that would that would would have been particularly part of the identity for for the people of that city
1: I think definitely I think the sense to which you know uh, towns can be very proud of their of their sanctuary spaces uh you know certainly the the people of Ephesus might have been proud of their temple of Artemis uh, in the same way that the the citizens of Pompeii were proud of um you know their colonies, dedicate, being dedicated to Venus. Mm-hmm. Venus was the patron goddess of of Pompeii. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, in both places, we see them adjourn to the tavern down the street, <laughs> where you know they they scratch out their, their markings on the wall mm-hmm. and get into fights and bar brawls, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a big you know big tent. So if, if we're thinking there
0: about that idea of sort of these these great public festivals or um, temples that are very prominent within cities being part of a civic identity, what about some of the other religious activities that existed? what sometimes get termed things like mystery cults. What about followers of Mithras then famously uh, supposedly meeting in more gloomy underground spaces perhaps with some kind of initiation rites. Do you think the followers of that would have had some, something more like a
1: religious identity that we would have recognised? I think they definitely would have had a, a sense of a sense of community. I think that's the word that I would prefer to, to use, which is any any time we see a group in, in antiquity, whether it's Mithras or maybe Isis, uh, uh, followers of, of Dionysus, maybe that have initiation rites as part of their a part of their their group identity. You know, for me, I go immediately to some anthropological mm-hmm. and sociological models that help me try to explain what what those initiation rights initiation rights are doing. And I think one helpful way that Victor Turner has has um, modeled for us is that they really help build a sense of of cohesion for mm-hmm. a for a group, and that group community can exist alongside and parallel to the urban civic life that we see, you know, in throughout the the, the Mediterranean. So I wouldn't, you know, sometimes the the takeaway for the mystery cults is that they're you know, meeting in the dark corners and they're undermining the religious practices of the state but at the end of the day people are going to choose to be a part of different groups for lots of different reasons mm-hmm. and, and I think it's important to, to see the variety that existed in cities for, for them.
0: But, but there's no sense of any of these being, you feel in competition or opposition to more general um, civic identities?
1: I wouldn't see them in, in opposition but I think the archaeological material is really interesting related to Mithras what you who you were asking about before there are some uh, amazing pieces that have been found in places like Ostia, where more many Mithraea have been excavated, that are either brooches or or sometimes pieces of jewelry that have scenes that we know are kind of emblematic of the Mithraic ritual on them. And we have to kind of imagine when are people when are people wearing these these mm. brooches and these these pieces of jewelry? Are they doing it? Do they put them on when they go in to the to the Mithraic initiation and they take them off, or could you be spotted around town maybe going to pick up your Bread with your Mithraic brooch on, and is that going to give you away? So the questions that you're asking about, you know, is there a a religious identity associated with these communities is really tough because interpreting the archaeological material is is tough. So yeah, I mean, almost the potential that you might you might feel it's
0: a bit like an old school tie being (laughs) worn around the town, perhaps that it's particularly recognisable to those who are members of it, but also to those who aren't, you're at least
1: marking yourself off as a member of that particular community. Exactly. Yeah. And for, for the followers of ISIS, you know, their old school tie is shaving their head. Yes. And so, you know, that's going to that's gonna spot you a mile away. Uh, but you know, hair grows back and <laughs> you can still be a, a member of the, the community of ISIS worshippers. <laughs> So if,
0: if we can move to one particular group then within the ancient world that perhaps might offer us something apart from this, and I'm thinking about Jewish people, um, do you think there's more of a sense of a distinct religious identity there than we're seeing in the followers of these Roman cult practices?
1: Uh, I, I definitely think that, that with, the Jewish, with the Jewish communities of Rome, we have to take account of, of their their historic identity. Um, you know the the history of their of their community. It really goes back centuries, uh, and so in the empire, as communities in the empire, they really have a strong sense of 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 their own identity. That they negotiate depending upon where they are. Certainly, the the traumas of war in the first century will create um, you know really piercing problems for for them throughout the Mediterranean. But if we look beneath the surface, I think we can even find you know some really positive stories about Jewish community in uh, uh, Cyrene in Libya, for example, um, we know from an inscription used the local amphitheater as their synagogue. So they've been able to make outreach to people in town, but they've been able to preserve part of their own strong identity even while doing that. So you know, the sense to which, you know, it's not as if they're blending in, we can't see them anymore. There you know, people find really creative ways to, to hold on to their traditions. And the Jewish community is, is um,
0: one of those communities. And do you think there's any way, using modern terminology, that for Jewish um, communities, there's a sense of a religious identity that's separate from a national, what might call an ethnic identity? Or do you think the, these categories would be inseparable at this time? I
1: think the the idea of of this mixture of eth- of ethnicity and, and nation is something that's very complex for the for the community. And and when we see them begin to express, let's say, uh, hopes in return to the temple, or or erecting uh, you know images of the temple in their synagogues you know it's very hard to tell whether they're pining for the return to the homeland or they're adapting their ritual to to their present circumstances um and and there's a lot there's a lot to explore there
0: Mm. if if we can move on then to to the the movement the group however we want to term it that, that probably makes the big biggest contribution to this idea of religious identity in the ancient world and and that's christians what do you think changes with the coming of christianity
1: i actually don't think uh anything changes very much, at least early on. And I know that's probably a scandalous <laughs> answer for, for some people because we know how the story ends. We know that eventually, uh, there's going to be a world of pagans and the pagan world will be legislated away. Um, but for me as a historian of especially the fourth century, it's important not to get caught up in knowing the answer for for, for what happens. At the time Christians are gain legal status, I think it's important to recognize They've already been members of the Imperial House. They, there have been several tense family dinners involving <laughs> emperors and Christian daughters who have been asked to take part in sacrifices in city centers. And, uh, you know, really by 311 or 313, we have to remember that the Roman world has been changing at the same time that Christians have been developing as a, as a group. And both of these groups are changing together Rome was probably ready for Christians before Christians were officially legalized. And I think that's you know something that we can get to and appreciate if we recognize that uh, neither of these groups is stuck in one place.
0: Mm-hmm. And certainly with, with the rhetoric that comes from Christians, particularly from the 4th century onwards, we see a lot of discussion of what it means to be a Christian and how this interacts with the idea of being a Roman in particular, but also we see a lot of Christians talking about what it means to be a heretic, mm-hmm. or what it means to be a Jew, or what it means to be a pagan. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that this concept of religious identity really comes to the fore, or even almost comes into existence now with, with Christian rhetoric?
1: I think that the, the Christian rhetoric is, is important after the legalisation, Uh, because the debates that this community is now going to have about what it means to be a member are going to be aired in public and and that's going to change the nature of our sources. But I think it's also important to recognize and, and really fascinating to recognize that this group for three centuries prior to its legalization was actually talking in similar terms amongst itself. Mm-hmm. It's just that the the terms would sometimes change. The obvious example, the best example of this is that they didn't even know to call themselves Christians for about 80 years mm-hmm. or so into the first century. Um, and so that that tension of you know what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus is going to you know first it's going to be aired amongst the small groups of the first three centuries uh, as they struggle for for legal recognition, and after Constantine it's going to be something that uh, you know your neighbors start to hear they mm-hmm. start to hear hear Christians arguing about these things.
0: So you feel that as, as a form of identity in itself, it takes quite a while to come into existence. It, I, I suppose the interesting thing to be asking here is then. If you've got people who identify as Romans and Christians now, or you've also they're, they're saying that some other Romans are pagans. Um, are we seeing something quite distinct to the picture we started with, where we're looking at the, the late Roman Republic, where to be Roman just subsumes all of this religious activity, which, which isn't to be treated as a separate category?
1: I think the, you're right. you're right on here. The issue in the 4th century is that the nature of what it means to be Roman is being fiercely debated, mm-hmm. and that is a political conversation. It's a conversation that involves... Uh, the nature of tradition, and the nature to which people want to preserve traditions, and the sense of their own past. And what we see within the Christian community is a, a, a sharp disagreement over whether to respect some of the pluralistic traditions of Rome or whether to make a clean break from them. Mm-hmm. And that internal conversation leads to the rise of all the labels that you mentioned, the heretics and the Arians and pagans. Uh, but I think you know, at the core, if we step back and try to describe what we're seeing, we're seeing a, a group of people around the Mediterranean debating what it means to be a part of, of something that they want to have in common. Mm-hmm. And do
0: you think then, as Christians are talking so much about about pagans, this word i've been rather skirting around for the last fifteen minutes. do you think we ever get the people you know for for the sake of convenience we're calling pagans? do you think we ever see those people actually then having a sense of a religious identity for themselves now that Christianity is is changing the way people talk about things.
1: That is really, really hard to find mm. in the sources. And it's it's remarkable that it isn't there. It's one of the reasons, as an archaeologist, that I'm motivated to study cities the way that I do. that I think the city um, unit of measurement is a is a great unit for, for trying to capture what life was like for non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Because cities throughout the fourth century are traditionally not dominated by churches, mm-hmm. and they're traditionally not dominated by visible architectural expressions of Christianity. So to try to recover, at least tantalizingly recover, what life was like, maybe, uh, outside the, this, this Christian dialogue, I, I want to go you know tour places like Ostia, or places like Ephesus, uh, or Alexandria in Egypt. Well, thank you very much. The
0: search continues. If I can finish then um, with the final two questions that I've been asking everybody I've been interviewing about their own sort of engagement with the ancient world. And the first one of these is, if you could see anything monument, person, event from the
1: ancient world, what would you like to witness? Richard, you know, listeners just need to see the smile on my face, the grin, <laughs> the grin when I say, I want to be able to walk down the streets of Ostia mm-hmm. with people in it. Mm-hmm. I want to see uh, early second century harbour town with people building new new shops and, and new bars and, and to come to them basically as, as someone from the future, uh, knowing how the city is going to change yeah. and knowing uh, where it came from. I just think you know sometimes uh, I've walked those streets alone too many times, I, w- I need the Romans to be back in there.
0: <laughs> and Ostia is such a focus of your research. So yeah. What, if anything, do you think you would discover or perhaps find
1: surprising about actually walking the ancient streets of Ostia then? I would love to see buildings in the process of, of going up. Mm-hmm. I think the second century is a time of, of major change. We know that from the masonry mm-hmm. of, the, of the city, but masonry can only take you so far. And I would love to see the workers who are erecting the sites that we uh, climb up today. Yeah. And I would love to see the streets take the shape that we know that they had. I just think that, that that's a 3D reconstruction that would be amazing to walk through. Mm. Excellent. And
0: the second question that I'd like to ask you is, if you could change anything from the very minor to the completely structural about any aspect of the ancient world, what
1: what would you like to shift there? This one I thought, I thought a lot about, Richard, uh, and I think what I've settled upon is I would love to go back and try to find a way to uh, prevent Diocletian's persecution of Christians. Mm-hmm. I think that around 303 when the Christians themselves are targeted legally and, and explicitly targeted legally as 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 enemies of the state basically, having their property confiscated and their books burned. Uh this is a traumatic moment for the group that has been trying to gain um uh legal recognition. Mm-hmm. And I think any time an empire or a, a state or a society starts to target people specifically with their legislation, um, you know, that's a point that prejudice is always something that's going to be fought but when it, it gets enrolled in the law books I think that's an ugly an ugly point for history and so mm-hmm. I would I would want to go back and, and maybe try and help them do that over again.
0: So the, the what's often called the great persecution for, exactly. a, for about a decade exactly. and in the early fourth century just before the reign of Constantine in fact I mean obviously you know you would you would prevent a lot of suffering and, and loss of life which is you know very good in itself but do you think anything would change on the wider
1: historical scene if that persecution hadn't taken place? You know, I think the the archeological evidence from places like Dura, Europus in Syria, suggests that many Christians were finding ways to build new um, churches and worship spaces in, in houses and in local environments uh, a half century before the the great persecution. Mm-hmm. And to me, that testifies to the fact that many of them were busy going about their daily routines with their friends and their neighbors and the the noise that they were making was renovating their home, and and I think that that's kind of part of the story of what happens in the third century is that Romans start to recognize they don't need to be afraid of, mm-hmm. of people that worship Jesus, uh, and so the turning point of the persecution is I think a uh, like I said I think it's just an ugly chapter in in something that you know we tend to see often in history regrettably. So if I can have
0: one final rather cheeky counterfactual hypothetical <laughs> yeah. question coming off that, but I suppose that's that's the the point of this question really um is to say, do you think the conversion of constantine what sometimes called the triumph of christianity would have happened or would have happened in the same way without that persecution
1: i think constantine i'd like to be very yeah, speculative uh, here hey, well let's be speculative <laughs> let's end let's end it on speculation i think constantine is a fascinating figure who clearly has different senses of christianity mm-hmm. almost you know every year and a half of his life that we can pick up from his biography something something clearly affected affected that man um, and it and it changed every every so often his understanding of his Christianity changed so um you know, I, I wouldn't doubt or I wouldn't want to doubt um, the sincerity of his conversion or the, the issues that sometimes get debated about uh, whether he was really a Christian or mm-hmm. not. I think he did he did good things for the for the empire, but I also think um, he had a really strange understanding of his Christianity at various points of his life.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's been really interesting to hear what, what, what you've had to say about aspects of the ancient world, both ones that did exist and a little hypothetical flourish at the end as well. But thank you very much for, for being here. Here and being my interviewee today.
1: Richard, this was fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you.
0: And thank you all for listening.